Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guy tells the stories of two inventions we take for granted today. First, he tells the interesting history of the elevator, and then he tells the surprising history of the vending machine. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. At the 1854 World's Fair, inventor Elijah Otis would ride on a platform that was lifted up a rail by a rope. And as it got to its highest point, he would then have someone cut the rope. But instead of falling to his death, his newly invented safety mechanism would catch his elevator before it fell more than just a few inches. A common installation today that allows millions of people to reach their offices, the passenger elevator, or if you happen to be from the United Kingdom or Australia, the lift, seems like a natural development that allowed us to build taller buildings and dig deeper mines and, well, allow us to avoid taking the stairs. But actually, it took hundreds of years before we made the things safe enough that people would want to, say, ride in them. It's safe to say that we never would have built skyscrapers if we hadn't invented elevators. But the tale of Elijah Otis at the 1854 World's Fair is really just a small part of the story. Elevators and the changes in the world that they helped to bring are history that deserves to be remembered. For much of human history, the best that we could do to get heavy things to high places was to physically drag them. One of the very earliest elevators may have been part of the method of building the upper levels of the Khufu Pyramid, where many laborers might pull the enormous stones up a central shaft using ropes and pulleys. Millennia after that, the Greek inventor Archimedes invented an elevator that worked on a pulley and winch system around the year 236 BC. He found that wrapping a rope around a wheel with weights on the end allowed for heavy things to be elevated rather easily. These devices had human or animal workers to work the wheel at the top. They were popular in ancient Greece and saw fairly widespread use. The most complex ancient elevator was probably the one built in use in the Roman Colosseum in the 1st century BC. 24 cages were run by 224 slaves who ran winches in eight-man teams. The winches connected to a complex system of ropes and pulleys that were capable of carrying all 24 cages to the arena in mere seconds. Most of these early elevators were meant to assist in moving heavy loads, and they all relied on the strength of the rope. There was no safety mechanism if the rope broke. Elevators remained much the same through antiquity in the Middle Ages, when castles and mountain monasteries would use man-powered pulleys to physically raise and lower people and goods comes as no surprise that early innovations in elevator technology came thanks to royalty. In 1743, Louis XV had his favorite machinist, Blase Henry Arnault, install what was called a flying chair in his apartment. 
The device used a complex system of counterweights and pulleys, and it was driven by a rope that was pulled inside the elevator. And it wasn't so much that Louis didn't want to walk stairs, it's that he wanted a discreet way to visit his mistress, who was on another floor. He also had something called flying tables made, and those are tables that would be lifted up, could be filled with food, and then would be lowered back down to him and allow him to eat in private without constantly having to have servants around him. In 1793, the Russian inventor Ivan Kulibin built the first screw drive elevator, and it was installed at the Russian Winter Palace. In a screw drive elevator, the car moves up and down by following a track on a twisting screw-like main support shaft. By the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution was transforming society on almost every level imaginable. With respect to elevators, the need to transport goods and raw materials more quickly and further and faster than ever before was the catalyst to advancement. Lumber on steep hillsides and coal from deep underground needed to be moved, and it was here that early haulers and lifts first became commonplace. Winches and pulleys had been in use in mining for centuries, but by the 1780s, steam-powered motors began replacing them. By the 1830s, these machines were in wide use in industrial mining and factories in Europe. For the most part, these elevators were simply platforms that could be lifted, and they had no safety mechanisms to keep people from falling off. More importantly, for decades, the only material used to lift the platforms was rope, and it had a nasty habit of breaking. Accidents were so common, and the deaths and dismemberments so terrifying, that in parts of what is now Germany, it was illegal to transport men by rope elevator until 1859. Cable breakage was so common it created what has been called a trauma of the cable, instilling a lasting fear into miners and the populace and branding the inventions as unreliable. In 1834, Wilhelm Albert, a German mining administrator, invented a twisted iron rope he called an Albert rope, which is much more durable than hemp ropes. It was these mining engineers, too, who first invented an elevator brake, meant to halt falling ore buckets if ropes broke, which were in use as early as 1848 in Belgium. Other early 19th century elevators included one built in 1823 by artist Thomas Horner and the architect Decimus Burton, who built the enormous London Colosseum. It was actually based on the Greek Parthenon and was built specifically to house a 40,000 square foot panoramic view of London, painted by E.T. Paris and based on some of Horner's sketches. At the building's center was an enormous ascending room, which allowed viewers to rise to the top of the building to properly see the enormous painting. A belt-driven steam-powered elevator was installed in a factory in London in 1835, and in 1839, Gitano Genovese installed a flying chair in the palace of King Ferdinand II of the Two Sicilies, noticeable because it had a spring-loaded brake meant to stop the elevator if the rope broke. Still, in America, and for the purpose of passenger transportation, most people didn't trust an elevator to lift them a dozen feet off the ground, much less a hundred. In the middle of the 19th century, Elijah Otis brought some ingenuity, but more importantly a sense of drama. In 1852, Otis had not had a lot of successes in various ventures in his life, and found himself clearing out an old sawmill factory to turn it into a bed frame factory. Working with his sons, they were searching for a way to carry debris from the floor to the upper levels of the factory, but they were worried about the safety of a lift. They came up with a safety device that employed a wagon spring. If the rope lifting the elevator snapped, the spring would snap outward and catch on the tooth beams in the shaft. Several years later, Otis came up with a plan to demonstrate his safety hoist in style in the Crystal Palace at the World's Fair in New York in 1854. He rode the elevator high into the air amidst a crowd, and when he was near the top, he had a man cut the rope holding him up. Instead of crashing to the floor, it fell only a few inches before the spring brought the elevator to a stop. He is said to have then announced to the crowd dramatically, All safe, gentlemen, all safe. 
It is this event that has taken on an almost legendary sheen in elevator history, and it's often cited as the moment when the public realized that they could trust traction elevators. In the years that followed, Otis's company installed what has been called the world's first passenger elevator at the Evie Howitt building, powered by a steam engine in the basement. The building housed Howitt's fashionable Emporium, which sold imported cut glass, silverware, and hand-painted china. The building stood only five stories, and Howitt knew that it did not need an elevator, but thought that the novelty would drive people into the store. The elevator moved less than a foot a second. By comparison, today's elevators travel upwards of 40 feet per second. There's historical issues, however, with the amount of significance that this stunt has taken on in terms of the history of the elevator. I mean, the, the stunt at the World's Fair has a lasting drama to it, but much more important was the survival of the Otis Elevator Company. After the World's Fair, Otis was said to have doubled his sales every year thereafter, and in 1898, Otis absorbed 14 of its major competitors. Elijah's sons would tell the story over and over again and perhaps embellish its historical importance, but there's relatively little mention of it in contemporary news sources. And to complicate the importance of Otis's demonstration, many elevators, even more than we have mentioned, existed before 1854, and some of them even included similar safety mechanisms, although it isn't clear if Otis was aware of those inventions when he created his own. Certainly his demonstration does not seem singular when considered in context. German historian Andreas Bernard says that the demonstration is but a single voice in a mighty chorus of 19th century mechanics. In fact, the Howitt Elevator wasn't even the first passenger elevator in the United States. That honor actually belongs to the Bunker Hill Monument, which had a steam power elevator installed it when it opened on June 17, 1843. It is a curiosity that the building of an elevator shaft in a building actually predated the elevator. In 1853, Peter Cooper, a philanthropist and inventor, among other things, built his Cooper Union building with a cylindrical shaft because he believed that passenger elevators would soon be practical and that the cylinder was the most efficient shape. This was four years before Otis installed a passenger elevator, and it would have been even longer before he designed one that could fit in the world's first elevator shaft. In 1859, another man, Otis Tufts, became the first man to receive a patent for a passenger elevator in the United States for his screw-driven elevator he called a vertical railway. This elevator had an enclosed car with a bench for passengers to sit. It wasn't until 1861 that Elijah Otis got a patent for an elevator, and it was an open-platformed freight elevator rather than a passenger one. Tufts installed several of his slow but safe elevators in hotels, like the Fifth Avenue Hotel in New York, which remained in use until the 1870s, while Otis's Howard elevator was removed three years after its installation. But it was the Otis Company's elevator which would become commercially successful, relegating Tufts to the history books. Elevators after the mid-19th century, while they were proliferating, were still relatively rare. Most buildings were not more than four stories high, and elevators were slow. They were installed as luxury items in hotels and cities like Paris and New York and London. The most luxurious were wood-paneled and included upholstered seats, mirrors, and even chandeliers. Fifteen years after his demonstration in the Crystal Palace, there were 2,000 Otis elevators in use. In 1870, the eight-story Equitable Life Building was one of the first office buildings to include an elevator and represented the sudden dominance of elevators in architecture. Much more powerful hydraulic engines replaced steam ones, and in 1880, the first electric elevator was developed by German Werner von Siemens. In 1883, American inventor Schuyler Wheeler patented his own electrical elevator. The safety issues facing passenger elevators were trivial compared to those mining elevators of the same period. By 1880, above-ground elevators were traveling less than 2 feet per second at most 80-foot buildings. 
Mines in Europe had shafts extending up to 2,600 feet and elevators that moved or 30 feet or more per second. Still, there remained another deadly flaw in elevator designs, the open shaft. Today, it might be hard to imagine an elevator without automatically closing doors, but in the early years, they sometimes had no door at all, and when they did, they were manual. Before the 20th century, elevators had no buttons and instead were run using a lever, which controlled speed, managed by countless elevator attendants who had to stop the elevator at each floor. Many people died opening doors and falling into the shaft or being caught by a returning elevator. The first solution was to try locking the door from the inside when the elevator left, but the method was unreliable and didn't stop the accidents. J.W. Meeker patented the first latch that would open and close automatically in 1874, and inventor Alexander Miles invented a system of flexible belts that open and close the doors automatically as the elevator passed by in 1887. It was eventually the electric elevator that solved all these problems. Elevator floor control, first invented by Frank Sprague in the 1890s, was refined as electric elevators began to dominate the market. Sprague's company was bought by the Otis Elevator Company in 1895. The electric elevators dramatically reduced the cost to maintain and run elevators and removed the need for an operator. Electric elevators also solved once and for all the problems of opening and closing doors by connecting them to circuits, or today by connecting them to computer systems that can time the stopping of the elevator and the opening of the door simultaneously. By 1900, the automatic elevator was invented, but passengers didn't quite trust it yet, and they still wanted operators. In September of 1945, 15,000 elevator operators went on strike, and business in New York ground to a complete halt. For a week, people couldn't go to work, and when scabs were hired, the untrained workers caused accidents and even some deaths. Anybody can step into our jobs, that's what they say, but it's not true, said one striker. It's estimated $8 million in taxes were lost each day because of the strike. It was this, finally, that brought the automatic electric elevator into common use and eliminated elevator operators entirely. One more fixture of elevator history is Muzak, or elevator music. This music started appearing in elevators around the 1920s, supposedly as a means of distracting passengers from the fear of elevators, but more likely due to the boredom of waiting for slow elevators to reach their destinations. The name comes from the Muzak Company, which has changed hands many times over its history and which first produced its mood music in 1934. The background music was marketed for elevators, shopping centers, and offices and meant to increase productivity or encourage browsing. Starting in the 1960s, the term elevator music came to prominence with its negative connotations. In the days before elevators, the rooms on the upper floors of buildings used to be cheaper because the people renting those rooms had to walk up all those stairs. But because of elevators, now the penthouse suite is the most desirable real estate in the building. Today, more than 7 billion elevator rides are taken each day worldwide, and elevators have made it possible to ride up 80 floors. And along with the development of steel I-beams, allowed us to build buildings that were taller than 5 or 6 stories tall. Now they're an integral part of office buildings, of hotels, of cruise ships, and more, but they have remained pretty much unchanged since the development of the automatic elevator. And there is some room for innovation, because one of the limits to how tall you can build a building today is how long you can build an elevator shaft to lift an elevator that's pulled by cables. In London's tallest skyscraper, the 95-floor building called The Shard, for example, Passengers have to disembark to get on a second set of lifts to reach the tallest floors. The reason is, the longer the elevator shaft, the bigger the mechanism needs to be to lift both the weight of the elevator and all the 
heavy cable. But there's all sorts of new technologies coming along, including something called an ultra rope, and even entirely new technologies that might change the entire idea of how elevators work, allowing them to, in the future, elevate us even higher. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. And once again, I'd like to welcome Betty Jo, the history mom and my grandma, to the show. So we start this episode in the introduction with, I, I mean, the famous story mm-hmm. of, of Alicia Otis uh, dropping his elevator and having it stop. And I, I think that's a that was a, yeah, it was a really interesting, I mean, it was a really cool way of starting it because we go on to talk quite a bit about how maybe that mm-hmm. was, <laughs> has been turned into a legend. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, first of all, this this story might not have been as dramatic at the time, but I mean, the, the interesting thing, you know, is that Otis probably didn't invent anything all that unique. Uh, what he did was sell elevators quite well and beat his competition quite well. So if you get in an elevator anywhere in America, almost uh, almost virtually all the time, when you look down at the bottom as the doors open, you'll say it says Otis Elevators. So it's interesting to hear the story there. But this is another of those technologies, and we talk about a lot of those, where it's really kind of just ripe. I mean, you know, everything that you would need to put it, the pieces are coming together. There's lots of people who could be said to have invented it. But there's usually someone who's central to taking that into popularizing it and making it the real thing. And that's what really Elisha Otis did. Uh, But it's still still a good story. The most amazing thing is that, or basically what he did was that he just took over company after company after company as I came along. And so he, he was as much a businessman as anything else. And when you look at it, uh, the only name I know about elevators is Otis, and I don't know why. Yeah. So, I mean, it's great. It's a great... And, and Josh wrote this one, by the way. Josh wrote the script on the elevator one. So, I mean, the, the whole history of how you got... And if you can imagine going down, you know, a hundred stories in a mine with just a rope. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and no brake mechanism uh, like Otis had. And, and, a, and a hemp and, rope at that. <laughs> and, and, we were, and we were actually doing that, you know, that, 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 yeah. that it's kind of crazy to think about it. But, I mean, Otis really was the one that at least convinced the public that it was safe to ride these as passenger elevators. Uh, and that's the reason that we could build skyscrapers and, and have the elevators that we have today. So there's a lot of credit to it, uh, even if uh, not that many people mentioned at the time that he was at the, at the you know, World's Fair, the exposition, you know, dropping his elevator. Yeah. Well, and the fact that uh, the part that really, really interested me was the fact we didn't put doors on them until later. Uh, uh, so uh, <laughs> it would take a little convincing for me to get on an elevator without a door. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the, or that the or, door would just open and the elevator's not there and you just either, step in and walk into the elevator Either that or there. they should have put safety belts in, in elevators all yeah. those years ago because that's really scary. But the other thing was that as we learned to build buildings that were that tall, we had the steel that could do it. It was an idea whose, whose time has come. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, before that, what, we couldn't even, we didn't have the technology to build the buildings until we got the I-beams, the steel I-beams. Yeah. Uh, but then you, there's no point in building the buildings without the elevator. So, that, you know, the time, the time just came. Yeah. And it's interesting it's, it's, to say that the technology continues to change. Yeah, continues to. And, it, as, and apparently in some ways that I think that we, we uh, will we'll know in the future. Because, I, I mean, in general, uh, for what, the last, I mean, for pretty much all of all three of our lives, the elevators have stayed actually pretty much the same. Yeah. Uh, they have not, uh, they've not changed all that much. Although, I mean, they, they've, the, what's changed is some of the like displays and stuff. There's a, uh, there's an old elevator here in Casper and it's, 
it doesn't have an electronic uh, display for the wet floor you're on. And so it's got like a, it's a something that spins and it's got like a little magnifying glass so that huh. as the elevator moves up it, the, this thing just actually physically rolls to show which, which uh, floor you're on. So some of that's changed a little bit. That's an older elevator. Well, I okay, one time little... in my life, if this really dates me, one time in my life, I remember getting into an elevator that had a live elevator operator. Oh, Douglas, Arizona at the at the famous, famous hotel there, there's still a, a little wizard man, wizard man oh, who, 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 uh, well, when, when who... When I was a kid, I think in Denver somewhere, we, I was on an elevator mm-hmm. actually had a... And, you know, there's interesting things about the strike and, you know, we did we did one on, on the, the airplane that crashed into the Empire State Building uh, and uh, the elevator operators, some of the people there that were injured, were ele- everybody was an elevator operator, all the elevators had elevator operators and stuff was flying down the, uh, the elevator shafts and stuff. I mean, it's an interesting that's an interesting time. So I mean, this this idea we just kind of take for granted that they're that they're safe yeah. now. And it, it's also I mean, it's interesting to say what if Otis hadn't been there at that time? Would would all these other people that were doing it would would it, everything have really essentially been the same because it was just time and the time was ripe? Or would it have taken more time before people trusted elevators to be safe, and therefore more time before we were building above, say, a five-story building? Uh, and so it's it's hard to you know it's hard to say how much you know one person impacts that. So I mean it is it is though when you put it together. I mean what that technology then ties to much of the modern world, especially much of how cities work, come because that technology really allowed cities to be what they are are today. And you know now you know car elevators are quite common and and uh, you know it's uh, uh, elevators are just so part of life that we kind of don't even think about it. Well, in so much of uh, construction, so much of mining, uh, all out uh, the in business is a vital part. Uh, very, very, very important in in the way that businesses develop because mm-hmm. you uh, because you need to get up and down. That's all mm-hmm. there is to it. Yeah, and you know one of the interesting things I think about this is that uh, we we went all the way back and we get to do that in some of these mm-hmm. episodes where you know we get to talk about how there were elevators before <laughs> before the you know these modern ones and so some of those mm-hmm. some of those you know earlier ones uh, that you, we've been using them since since Roman yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. The one that they we described at the Colosseum. Yeah, if you understand really, really Archimedes or whatever, it's not a surprise that there were ancient yeah. elevators. Uh, and I mean, because the, the concept, the concept of the wheel and the counterweight is not actually all that complex. Yeah. But it really, uh, a lot of what had to do with elevators had to do with the development of materials that would last the way they did. So I, I don't know if they ever dropped a you know an elevator full of lions there in the. Uh, I don't know if a rope broke and the, and I wonder what happens <laughs> if the lions get loose or if they just get squished at the bottom. I don't know. But yes, elevators they go all the way back, and yet they are still a rather modern invention uh, that really define yeah. a modern time and you know that's these these invention stories are sometimes just really fantastic stories because so very often something's either much newer or much older than you than you realize that it was yeah we've seen and we've seen that on both ends is that things that you would think were older i think it's interesting because i mean yeah the, the basic concept of the elevator is not that hard and yet for a lot of those ones you know we're talking about this ancient uh, we would barely call them an elevator on on by modern modern yeah but, but but the mechanism using a flywheel using yeah. a counterweight using i mean those were used to build castles those were used quite possibly those were used to build ancient wonders like the pyramids uh and so i mean that you know the idea that makes the elevator work you know is is ancient and the physics behind it is is fairly old uh but uh, still you know now i mean who, who then could have considered that we'd be putting on top of 100 story buildings well and the fact that it took uh somebody who d- d- learned how to develop a different kind of rope uh, in yeah, order uh, for it to be uh, to make that next step, uh, is is also fascinating because there's always auxiliaries to an invention. There's always things that come in that uh, that help when something's developed. Yeah, it was a big step between when you would lift a rock or a, or a, a you know an animal even, and when you would put people in them. 
you know, that was a big step. But I mean, all the risks that you took in ancient deep mines, uh, you know, one of them is that you're, the way you're being let down into that mine is on a string, you know, <laughs> might, yeah, you know, might one day pop, you know. And, uh, you know, and it's it's as with all, you know, machines, it was first they were pulled by people or by a donkey or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we got to our to uh, machines that will start doing yes. the steam engines. And now now, of course, they're all they're all electric. Um, well, I, I saw some stuff sometimes with that with some smaller elevators that are only working on like in a few floors. We still have some that, that run on uh, what's the or run on water. They're uh, oh, hydraulic. Uh, yeah. Hydraulic, yes, hydraulic huh. uh, elevators. So apparently, that's for smaller ones. That can still be a, a more economic choice, but they only work for you know fairly small distances. Yeah, uh, I had seen yeah, uh, we, on something else. I saw that uh, the elevator motors last for many, yeah. many years, and that those are very good salvage. When buildings are torn down, often their elevator motors are still good and still might be good for years. They're very expensive, and so those are something that they always salvage off the top of a building. So the technology doesn't change all that much. I know once uh, when I worked in the corporate world, the elevator broke down, and all I can say is it sounded like for two weeks someone was hitting on a metal bar with a sledgehammer. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what they were fixing, but that was all that it was for two weeks. was wham, 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 wham. (laughs) Somehow that fixed it. (laughs) Then when you get in the elevator, like, I don't know if I trust whatever method was being used. You know, they. I, I feel like they talk about the trauma of the cable for those early ones, where uh, I mean, yeah, people were, people did fall, <laughs> or things did, you know, those, and I'm sure they could cause horrific accidents. Uh, but I feel like that's even though uh, elevators don't fall particularly often anymore, and if they do, they stop. That's uh, that's the whole. That's I the think whole elevator point, accidents but, are, are very rare. Yeah. yeah. And yet, uh, I think it's, you know, it's it's a rather, it's stuck around in kind of the public imagination because it's a very, like, you know, like a final destination. Sure, uh, the, I guess it is, yeah. Follows, or it's, it's one of those things that, you know, still lives on in the mind that what if that fails and the elevator falls to the, it's not impossible. Yeah, no matter what you want to say, if you're in an elevator and it makes a funny move or a funny jolt or something like that, everybody in there has that sudden thought that this is not where I want to die. <laughs> this thing's hanging on a rope somehow, yeah. <laughs> Um, I, but I think it's. I thought it was really interesting to see these different ways, and of course, it was you know mostly used. The, this was a technology that was used in heavy industry for yes. uh, centuries yeah. before we were before before we they trusted putting else. people in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we uh, we they talk about the the rich people who made their own special ones. You know, Louis the Fifteenth building a, a flying table so that he doesn't have to. See. So he can just say, "I need I need seconds." He just pulls his table up, they refill his table, and lets yeah. it back down. Yeah, he, he doesn't. He doesn't or have or, to or see having his own little sneaky service. elevator to visit his mistress too. We got uh, Yeah. So yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, if you watch TV, people ride dumb waiters all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's part of any any mystery show in an old house. Uh, but in reality, dumbwaiters were made with the idea that you know you didn't have people in there, and then if the if the string broke, all you lost was your plate of food. Uh, yeah. yeah, but yeah, but dumbwaiters were around for a very long time before people were really trusting mechanical elevators. Yeah, yeah. and that's I mean that's why you know if if you try to imagine being in a world where. Uh, elevators that carry people don't really exist and all you've heard about elevators is uh, the horrible story that your your cousin's friend you know was was in a was was, was carrying something in a factory and it fell and squished his arm or something i, I can see why you'd be you, you might not you're like i don't, I don't want to step onto that yeah uh, and then, and then that's why you have and so and it made the world different if they had a five-story yeah. building which is about as high as buildings would be uh the least the desirable uh real estate was up on the fifth floor 
Uh, and uh, yeah, really uh, you know they probably did use a pulley. So they probably did use some sort of elevator to move furniture and stuff up there because they probably pulled that up on the outside and, and and brought it into a window. But yeah, it's interesting because you know you had to walk stairs, and so the and so yeah. now the higher you are, the the more valuable the real estate. I mean that's how much it changed things. Yeah. But I mean you can imagine uh, in an era when you know a five story building was as tall as a building was going to get. Uh, that when you came up with elevators and I-beams and you started building, you know, Empire State Building, 70, 80, you know, 100-story buildings, uh, that that really seemed like a terrifying thing. And um, did you really trust that? And, and uh, so yeah. this, is, this represents, uh, you know, the, that, that kind of shift. I mean, if you think about that kind of shift to today where we just take elevators for granted. I mean, you, you don't yeah. even really think about them. Yeah, the, uh, it, it really, you know, when we talked about the, the strike is that it brought New York to a standstill. Yeah. Because uh, they couldn't. Well, and apparently it was it was slightly more skilled work than they they might have assumed, and there were some accidents with scabs trying to run the things. So you just put in. I guess you just shove anybody in an elevator that they have to. Yeah, they took some skill to run. That's kind yeah, of interesting they, that yeah you know, that you had to figure out where the floor was and you had to slow it down and stop it at the right place. But yeah, if you open the door at the wrong time and someone tries to step in an elevator, they might fall down a shaft or get their head cut off by the elevator flying by. Yeah. Or, yeah, well, and, and if you think about it, so uh, how, ma how many uh, uh, TV shows or murder mysteries or how many times have you seen it where the elevator didn't st stop in the right place or all that? It's oh, sorry, used, and they have to get out. Yeah. It's, it's used a lot of places in entertainment type things or or as a suggestion that something could go wrong. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Right. People are stuck in elevators. all. If you watch TV, people are stuck in elevators all the time. Mm -hmm. That's right. Gosh, in between some... floors. Yeah. Uh, there was an episode of, so I, can't, I can't remember what, what show it was. But like the the woman's pregnant and the elevator gets stuck between floors and then she's like giving birth and they have to bring an EMT like poking his head in trying to help them give birth inside <laughs> an elevator. Uh, like it, it's a common, it really is common that elevators apparently are that, malfunctioning. Apparently we've been misled about how serious that risk really was. I yeah. thought it would be. I think, but it basically is if you're going to write a thr thriller and you need something in between, why basically the elevator stuck, stops in the wrong place. stuck in the elevator, yeah. That's honestly never happened to me. I mean, I've had a lot of weird things happen to me. <laughs> me either. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I've never been stuck in a... So I it can't be too common. I've been in lots of elevators, and I've never been stuck. Well, I had, uh, I had some friends helping me move into a third floor on a building in Arizona, and uh, I didn't quite understand it, but the guy would put the stuff on the elevator, and then he'd go around, and he'd run up the stairs. And it turned out that Robert had been in a, uh, a embassy suites at one point, uh -huh. and he had gotten stuck on the elevator, and he's never taken one since. So, so he sends his luggage up, and he meets it at the top. <laughs> he, he was sending all of my books and things up on the elevator, and he'd Maybe run he up the stairs. I thought he was on, a, on an exercise kick. It turned out that he, that he, he had learned his lesson. He was never going to ride on another one. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a... At least he wasn't working on the 60th floor. I have to imagine. I mean, that's why. This was probably, if it's it was probably like a three three story elevator. It was only a three story elevator. <laughs> What's the? I I think about you know when when things came to a stop. I'm sure there were stairs in all those buildings. But someone who works on you know the 50th floor, the 78th floor, they're like, no, nah, I'm not going to work today. I'm not, I'm not doing it. it. <laughs> I'm not walking up all those stairs. Was that in Ghostbusters? They had to go all the way up to the roof, and there was no elevator, and they had to walk up in the. Yeah, I guess oh, right. I guess right. what we found out from uh, from this discussion is that uh, getting stuck in elevators is not nearly as common as as Hollywood would 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 imply. Apparently, yeah. I, I there were so many different pieces of this this episode that end up being so interesting. I liked that we we talked about uh, music, which yeah. uh, you know this elevator music yeah. stuff totally. Uh, yeah, that, so I mean, this, this whole totally... genre of music was invented to calm people's fears about being in an elevator. And people make fun of the music because it's so light 
uh, and it's so you know I mean it's 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 so trite in a lot of ways yeah. and that it was it was really there so that to keep your mind off this elevator could fall at any moment and and and, and <laughs> you know they would find your body at the bottom of the of the of the, of the chasm uh, which which wouldn't happen because Otis had the little spring thing. I mean, the worst that happens is you fall and with stick. But so that, I mean that is interesting. And Muzak is still around. And so yeah, it is. Uh, someone asked. We had some complaints because we didn't play Lady from Ipanifa on there because which that's the, the quintessential is. It's it's not in the public domain. It is copyrighted. No, we didn't pay for rights to put in that piece of elevator music when we had we had public domain elevator music that we could use. But that's the reason is because it's. Uh, uh, it would not have been worth our while to pay for the music rights. <laughs> so someone's still making a fortune off of, off of the lady from Ipanifa. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that they're very thankful to have it. And they, they would argue with us over it. So that's why that's not that's the whole point that's that's in there, yeah. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? We actually spun around to one that's called Royals and Animals Till Death Do Us Part, is what it's called. But it talks about the, the British royal family and their animals and the relationship with animals. So it talks, and it was clearly done before Elizabeth II passed. It was, it was interesting, because it's not just about how they treat their dogs, which is, would, I think, surprise people. But I mean, the dogs are treated like princes. Uh, and they kind of argue that the, they put the dogs ahead of princes. Uh, that you like your dog and then your horse and then your and then your country and then your kids something like that they give some <laughs> order to that but also because uh, it's a family with a history of hunting and uh, you know that's what they do up at Balmoral so at the same time that they that they dote on these dogs they shoot lots of birds and and deer and but i mean it was still it was a lot of fun because you've always seen you know Elizabeth's corgis running around and and uh, and uh, William and, and Kate have a, a cocker spaniel now. Cocker spaniels are the most popular dog in England because everybody loves their cocker spaniel. Is that what they say? It's an old old family history. They go back to the to Elizabeth's mother, uh, who uh, huh. that was that was she, famous. She bet for on her. horse races. And the but, Queen Mother uh, did. And 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 we were very we were amused. Uh, uh, Princess Anne apparently had had a dog that had. Uh, had gotten itself into trouble, and so she ended up paying a fine. And she also then had to put the dog was supposed to put the dog in an anger, anger management, management yeah. class, which we thought was really funny. But basically, uh, as much as anything, it talked about the fact that for Elizabeth, she was around people so much, and and most of her life was 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 about people. That how much she enjoyed. Uh, having the dogs because they didn't talk back, they, they didn't, didn't talk politics, and they, uh, they they were you know they're genuine. I mean, you're the Queen of England. You spend your entire life, and you never have anybody who's willing to contradict you. They're all just sycophants, and the the dogs loved her for who she is. Yeah. Kept the same line of dogs from her original Daisy that she had had all those years ago. So it was it's a lot of fun to see you know just uh, it says something about the life that the royals live that they have the relationship with the animals that they do. And interestingly, we watched that entire video with two cats on my lap competing for who get you know who got to more modify the space. What have you been watching lately on Magellan TV? So one of the, one of the things I was watching recently actually, which was really cool, it was called fascinating places all right first when i had i'd heard that i was like ah so we'll have we'll have an episode about a different place each time but actually how, how it works is that each season will focus on like one area so see the first season is all about madagascar and it's it's really really interesting madagascar is a really unique it's got a really new unique ecosystem it's been separated from the rest of the earth for like 19 million years uh, it's interesting because apparently humans have only been there for about the last 2000 
So it took us a while to get there, but they, they have some really unique cultures there. And so it talks about all kinds of stuff. Uh, the first episode talks about the southwestern coast and these places called the spiny forests of Madagascar. Honestly, looks like kind of an alien landscape. It doesn't get a lot of rain, but they have all kinds of crazy desert adaptations. Uh, it talks about things like they have some lemurs on Madagascar that, you know, have only evolved on Madagascar. It's a really interesting mm -hmm. place. And it talks, too, about uh, how they are dealing with the modern world and kind of trying to protect these ecological spaces. And I, I think it was a really, really, really nice to learn about. So they've got a couple of seasons on there. It's called Fascinating Places. And they're very short videos. They're only about 15 minutes a piece, but they get to go pretty in depth because they take fairly small chunks. But I mean, that, yeah. sounds, that sounds really interesting. I think it's something I'll have to watch. Yeah. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, the History Guy tells the interesting history of vending machines. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy. If you, say, want to grab a snack in the middle of the night at a hotel somewhere in America, the one thing that you know is going to be available is the vending machine. Vending machines are still quite common in America, uh, although in America, of course, they're limited mostly to prepackaged foods. Nothing like Japan, which is famous for its vending machines, where you can buy almost anything, including underwear and live puppies. There are about 5 million vending machines in Japan, roughly one for every 25 people. And we've come to get used to vending machines being everywhere in modern society. You might be surprised to find out that they have a longer history than you might have thought, all the way back to antiquity. It is a history that deserves to be remembered. The first vending machine was described in the first century by prolific inventor and engineer Hero of Alexandria. He described the machine in his work Pneumatica, which included a description of how it worked. It was common in Greek temples for adherents to wash before they came into the presence of the gods in a purification ritual. The coin-operated machine was simple. A five drachma was deposited to a slot and dispensed a plate, which was attached to a valve. When depressed, the valve opened, dispensing holy water. The plate would tilt until the coin fell off, and then return to its original position, closing the valve. Although the technology behind it was simple, there were a lot of reasons why such machines could not proliferate. Coins in the ancient period and well into the medieval era were not meant to be perfectly round or even the same shape, so Hero's machine could only identify a coin by weight, and so was probably not very sensitive to coin denominations. There also simply weren't that many coins in circulation for a coin-operated machine to be very convenient. 1,500 years later, even simpler coin-operated machines were used in English taverns. They were small, portable boxes that carried about a pound of tobacco. When a coin was deposited, it flipped a trigger that caused the lid to pop open, and a customer could then scoop some tobacco out to fill his pipe. They were kind of an honor box, meaning that they had no mechanism to control the amount of product dispensed and relied on the honor of the patron not to take more than they were entitled to. The lid of the box had to be closed by an employee to be reset and then carried to another customer. In 1822, Richard Carlyle, an agitator and supporter of freedom of the press, designed a vending machine that would dispense books that had been banned, such as Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason, hoping that that would get around the law. In the shop is the dial on which is written every publication for sale. The purchaser enters and turns the hand of the dial to the publication he wants. When, on depositing the money, the publication drops down before him. 
officials still held him and his workers responsible, and it isn't clear if the machine was actually automatic. A patent for what might have been the first truly automatic vending machine was issued to a Simeon Denham of Yorkshire, England in 1857 for what he called a self-acting machine for the delivery of postage and receipt stamps. It was intended to be a machine that in exchange for a penny would give you a stamp from a roll inside the machine, but it doesn't seem to progress beyond the idea phase. He was granted a provisional patent, but he never took out the full patent. Two more patents were granted a decade later, one to a German inventor and another to a British machine that dispensed fortunes. In 1883, Percival Everett received a patent for a postcard vendor, which began to catch on. One account said that in England all places are closed on Sunday, and the only way to get a postal card or stamped envelope is to have recourse to the supply box. We should not be surprised to see this ingenious vendor before long supplying small objects of regular prices and dimensions. The following year, W. H. Freund got his own patent in the U.S. for an automatic drawing device which could dispense liquid. The growth of urban areas, especially cities like New York and London, pushed others to invent other devices. And at the same time, people were looking for ways that they could cheat or damage or otherwise misuse the machines. When Everett applied for his patent in the United States, he said it worked well when not, quote, designly misused. People had shoved in things like orange peels and paper and other rubbish that would jam the coin slots. The breakthrough in practical vending came in 1888 with the introduction of Thomas Adams' penny gum vending machines, initially placed on platforms of New York City's rail stations. In 1930, one magazine said they were promptly dismissed as an amusing novelty, while other histories have said that they were immediately successful. Adams' company soon released new machines that vended a five-cent package with five pieces of gum. The early ones were easy targets for fraud and could easily be tricked using a slug piece of metal put in instead of a coin and could be opened with a hairpin or a bent wire. Adams' machines were successful enough to launch many more machines that dispensed gum, peanuts, or candy, but also raised some social eyebrows. As the machines sometimes dispensed two rather than one gumball, they were seen by some social advocates as gambling and a threat to our children. The machines were also inviting targets for theft. Penny scales, which promised to weigh a user for a penny, proliferated as well. Improvements in fraud prevention and better automatic mechanisms came quickly, but the machines were still simple. The industry caught on in Europe as well. In France, 10 centime chocolate machines in railroad stations helped raise money for the Society of Stores for the Blind. The 1890s saw an explosion of vending machine companies. In 1890, Scientific American wrote about an automatic photograph-taking machine, which it proposed should join penny scales and candy machines. In Paris, vending machines hooked into the city's water supply and could provide nine quarts of steaming hot water for a coin. In Birmingham, England, they added coin slots to gas heating pipes, which could be used to buy 25 cubic feet of gas for a penny. In 1891, Scientific American could say that there may be found in almost every city and village in the United States automatic vending machines. This included perfume vending machines, which could dispense a few drops onto waiting hands. In Europe, some of the most popular vending machines provided alcohol. All users had to do was put a glass under the spigot and for a few cents get a few ounces of beer or wine, while others supposedly served hot drinks like coffee. They even had a counter that allowed vendors to know when to fill the machines without opening them. By 1893, the German company Stahlwerk was selling chocolate, cigars, matches, gum, and soap in thousands of vending machines on the continent. By 1908, some Stahlwerk machines were making $1,000 a day. Some of these machines could reject coins that were too small, an important advancement that users today are familiar with. A newspaper and stamped envelope machine patented by Charles Goldsmith included a stop lever that automatically closed the coin slot when out of candy, so it could not steal purchasers' coins. In 
1895, a Dutch publication said that one cannot enter a public place without seeing a weighing machine, a chocolate machine, and frequently a penny in the slot machine rendering some popular waltz at the cost of a copper or two. The waltz was one form of a trade stimulator meant to draw a crowd. Another was the Pulver Company's addition of small figures that moved whenever someone bought gum from their machines. It was a kind of golden age for defending machines. Book vendors appeared in Belgium, cigar machines in Chicago, and in the American Wild West, someone could even buy divorce papers from a machine. In 1899, James Martin of North Dakota patented a machine that could bend several items of different prices, and that rejected washers, pieces of metal, and steel discs. In New York, a water vending machine provided a communal cup, which invited concern from doctors and public health officials. In 1908, the Public Cup Vendor Company of New York started placing water vending machines that provided a paper cup with the water for a penny. That company eventually became the Dixie Cup Company. The Nick-O-Lock Company began installing small pay locks on toilets, and in 1913, another company created a vending machine that accepted 50-cent pieces in exchange for gasoline. Perhaps the most ambitious vending machines were automated restaurants called Automats. The first opened in Berlin in 1895 and were popular enough to inspire American businessmen to open their own. The most popular, operated by Horn and Hattert, first opened in 1902 in Philadelphia. These were so popular that at one point there were 40 automats in New York City alone, and they served about 350,000 people a day nationwide. But they were actually never fully automatic, with the main meal usually served by employees, while drinks, cake, sandwiches, and other foods could be purchased at the machines. The Ulla machines were of sometimes dubious reliability. They had a distressing tendency to steal coins thanks to faulty or jammed mechanisms. In one English machine, a person incited a penny and got nine shillings worth of merchandise. In 1928, Samuel Leveron was inspired to start his own vending machine company when he ran into a series of malfunctioning machines. He said, One weighing machine told me I weighed 205 pounds. Another told me I weighed 98. One chocolate machine gave me nothing, not even my penny back. Out of a peanut machine, I got six moldy objects that I wouldn't feed to a goat. The early years were filled with significant innovation and big ideas, most of which flopped with the public. Unreliable machines and the difficulties of keeping drinks cold and chocolate solid were too difficult to overcome in the days before widespread electricity and refrigeration. The most successful and longest lasting vending machines before the 1920s were penny scales and gum. Gum didn't melt like chocolate, was socially acceptable to chew in public, and had a long shelf life. As early as 1899, observers were concerned with the issue of slugs. Slugs can be almost anything, but are usually metal and at least vaguely coin-shaped. The classic trick was to tie a string to a slug with a hole through it. A user could get their gum and simply pull the coin back through the hole. Less common, one reporter said, that ingenious fishermen baited the coin with a coating of adhesive gum and fished for the contents of the till. Most vending machines had no ability to tell a coin from a slog, as they relied solely on size or weight to trip their automatic mechanisms. The difficulties of combating slugs doomed many of the more elaborate vending machine concepts and discouraged investment. It was the 1920s and electricity that next revolutionized the industry. In 1919, machines displayed at an electrical show could reliably vend a variety of items at different prices, and most importantly, could reject slugs. The ability to sell staple items like canned foods, toiletries, and other small items at a consistent price without the need for a clerk would open a new market for machines. By 1925, companies invented machines specifically for cigarettes for 15 cents, the first concerted effort at selling goods for more than a nickel. Policeman William H. Rao invented his when a bootlegger he was escorting escaped while he waited at a busy cigarette counter. Rao was certain that if there had been a cigarette machine there, the bootlegger would not have escaped. He built his first machines by hand. His first was made from a whiskey barrel. 
By 1928, he had sold more than 2,500 across the country. The cigarettes were actually more expensive than what people could buy at a counter, a surcharge for the convenience. The same year, an article in the New York Times proclaimed the catch-penny devices had developed earning powers that command the attention of Wall Street. A penny-scale manufacturer claimed that they were taking in 450 million pennies, $4.5 million, a year. The machines became common in 5 and 10 cent stores, and the introduction of machines that gave weights on a printed ticket drove their popularity. Businessmen dreamed of grocery stores filled with machines that could replace unimaginative employees who weren't buying into suggestive selling. The head of the Union Cigar Store said that of the salesman's work, 60% is the work of an automation. Why not give this sort of work to an automation? Cigar stores filled their walls with cigarette machines that could even speak using wax cylinders. Cigarette sales dominated the vending industry for decades. The 1930s and 40s bought better slug rejectors. Complicated roller systems that determined what the coin was and could spit it back out were invented, and magnets were added that could catch or reject slugs meant to mimic coins. In 1965, a machine to accept paper money was invented by John Greenwick. These machines originally used a kind of magnetic tape detector that could read the amount of iron in bills, but some became obsolete when personal printing ink carried similar levels of iron. Today, these kinds of readers often use a kind of low-resolution camera that can recognize specific patterns. Machines changed what they were selling as well. It proved difficult to create automated coffee machines, with successful ones only appearing in 1946. Some even used single-use pods, some of the ones now used in home coffee machines. Electrically cooled soda vending machines appeared before World War II, but didn't introduce cans until 1961. The refreshing look of this new machine actually beckons customers to come over, drop in a coin, and enjoy a cold bottle of Coke. In the 1950s, machines sold life insurance to plane passengers at airports. In 1955, the infamous Jack Gilbert Graham purchased life insurance for his mother from such a machine and then planted explosives on the plane in an attempt to collect the insurance. Forty-four people died and Graham was sentenced to death and executed. Coin-operated televisions and arcades proliferated starting in the 1950s. Frozen items appeared in the 80s, accompanied by nearby microwaves. In 1972, Polyband introduced a snack machine with a glass front, which gave rise to possibly the most common version of machines seen today. Today, Japan holds the crown for the country most famous for vending machines. The first vending machine in Japan was invented in 1888 by Tawaya Koshichi and sold tobacco. In the 1950s, the machines caught on in Japan, and the number of machines quadrupled between 1964 and 1970. Now you can famously buy almost anything in Japanese vending machines. We might think that we're clever for all the things that we can sell in vending machines today, but that's all put into a bit of historical perspective when you understand that the first vending machine invented dispensed holy water. But still, machines today can do all sorts of amazing things. There, there are vending machines that can custom decorate a cupcake on demand, ones that can knead the dough and bake a pizza to order. There are even vending machines that will sell you a car, although not yet a flying car. Vending machines today can give you the correct change. Many of them can accept credit cards. Some cigarette vending machines in Europe can scan your ID before giving you access to your product. We might not have moved to a world that some science fiction authors anticipated where everything is sold by a vending machine, but we can certainly see that vending machines will continue to be a part of the shopping experience well into the future. So similar to the, the last episode we just watched, uh, vending machines have a pretty deep history. And we get to talk about this again, we get to go all the way back to antiquity. And I think that, you know, Hero of Alexandria's machine, while only the most rudimentary 
kind of vending machine was really quite interesting. That the first one they had yeah. was something that was dispensing holy holy water. water to wash your hands before you went. Yeah, what a fascinating idea! You know, and that whole idea that it's the weight of the coin is tipping the plate, and you know, as the plate empties with water, then the weight of the coin will tip it back. I mean, it's it's a really simple idea, uh, but it's I mean, who who imagined uh, that coin operated vending machines uh, went back to ancient Greece? There were hardly coins. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when certainly... coins had really just been invented, and some of them came up with the idea that you didn't have to have someone there to pour the water. Yeah, that's a yeah, yeah. It's a, it's it's a really interesting how how far back it goes, and that they were so willing. I mean, that we were able and willing to invent such a thing uh, way before it was really practical. For yeah, anybody. and uh, you know, I guess a way to raise money for the shrine or something. Like that. So we think we're yeah. clever today. Uh, but it's it's really amazing, you know. And it, so, I mean, a, a lot of the mechanics that like we talked about with elevators, a lot of those mechanics are ancient. I mean, they're just ancient machines. But this that that idea is something you never would have guessed. You never would have guessed that there were coin-operated vending machines in the ancient world. And the fact that they and we've spent up until this date trying to figure out how to keep people from yeah. from from uh, <laughs> shoving slugs in them, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from doing it wrong. And so, uh, basically, uh, uh, as many, I think they probably spent as much time inventing them and, and then trying to figure out how to keep them safe. Yeah, that's. I think that I think it's funny because in some ways this this story is uh, a story of inventors trying to find new ways to keep people from uh, from misusing them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or and, people trying to figure out ways to, how to get around it so you can get it for free. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they even talked about uh, it in some of those like those gum machines that were in like subways that they they would take a slug and like make it sticky and then try to actually pull coins. Yeah. See if you actually could, trying to yeah, rob could, the. Grab coins and then pull them up out of it. Yeah, try to steal money from the machine. Yeah, that's uh, well, I you know there used to be I, back in the day there were a lot of gum machines. You still see gum machines, but it was it was a thing. I didn't ever do this, but you you someone would run up, a kid would run up and break the glass, and then kids would grab all the gumballs that they could and run away. Uh, oh and so goodness. I mean, there's always so it's it's interesting when you don't have you know someone watching your product, then people are always try. And of course, I newspaper machines still right. They depend upon your. That you, the, the good faith that you don't yeah. grab two newspapers, right? So I mean, so I mean, still, you know, they uh, it's it's kind of funny that no matter how you build them, people will try to get ways around them, uh, and that the whole time has been you know trying to be able to defeat that, uh, but it's still cheaper than you know paying someone to send there and sell the gum. So it's yeah. well, and the other thing is it's absolutely interesting is if uh, the people that are so very very good at this are the Japanese because they sell every, yeah. they sell fresh meat, they sell you know hose, they sell everything that there is through vending machines. Uh, and, and and live puppies, they say. And so I think that is absolutely fascinating. And they that, have those car vending that, machines that, now, that, right? Yeah. That that technology has yeah. is, is turned out to be uh, something that really has really taken off there. Yeah, I don't know. I, are, are vending machines more common or less common than they used to? I feel like they used to be more common than they are now, but I, I don't know if that's true. I think now they take your credit way. cards, yeah. Yeah, they've, they're still, uh, and it always seems like the ones you find, like if you're in a hotel, they're always old and uh, it beat kind of beat up. And <laughs> uh, but I, I I recently was at a motel someplace like oh, it was in Thermopolis or some tiny little town someplace that did not have uh, vending machines at all, and I was a little disappointed by that. Yeah, I was well, like, man, I can't get my. Where do you get a soda? Where do you get a overpriced soda in the middle of the night? I have exactly. one in the bottom of my. It's in my apartment building down on the bottom floor, and so uh, if I want gummy bears, why I can go down and get some, or potato chips or whatever. And, and it's brand it's the, new and very shiny, and uh, in a brand new building, and so wow. it obviously is still part of the of the technology that people build into a building. I feel like I kind of remember in the, when I was in high school, they replaced all the old vending machines with the the new ones that had. Oh, I mean, they're 
they're all old now, but uh, that would actually like had a little elevator on it that would go up and go pick up a bottle and then carry it down. And you watch that the whole time mm-hmm. as opposed to, uh, you know, just having a can that came out. Uh, those might, although they always seem to be jammed. Uh, one of the bottles would fall out wrong and you can, then you couldn't get any bottles out of it. I think that's been a universal experience of vending machines. I bet Hero's little box uh, <laughs> occasionally got jammed. <laughs> Well, and at least you weren't trying to put a coin in it that that wasn't really a coin like they did in the old days. Yes. Yeah, that's, you know, and they still would do that. I bet they still do like in cartoons and stuff like that where you tie a string to them and put them in. But like by the time, uh, by the time I, you know, I was, I was of age, uh, I don't think most of that would have actually worked because they, they had improved their slug <laughs> identifying yeah yeah i think they've pretty much fixed those i you know i wonder at the technology too because someone even take bills now and they can be very yeah. picky about the bill so clearly the thing can tell because if you're if you have a bill and it's got a, a crease in it or a corner or something like that it tells it so you know you obviously can't just go like photocopy money and speak well, you know, the, the, the technology has to have gotten very complex and is uh, that it can take gone? a card or a bill or, or or coins and give change and all the things that they're doing now has that yeah. gone on to is that where atms come from as have they taken? Oh that, yeah, I guess you could think of an ATM as a sort of vending machine. As, can't it's you? sort yeah. of a yeah. vending machine that you know you put in your you put you put your your information in it and it gets dollars back out. So I don't know, but it, yeah. you know, basically, if you take it one more step, it looks like to me that's where it went. Yeah, that's we didn't we didn't talk about that. I wonder. Well, maybe there's an episode on ATMs as well. Oh, absolutely, I'm uh, sure there is. Yeah, yeah. That will connect to. See right we'll here. See, if you wonder one. how we come up with topics for episodes, it's pop up. <laughs> we just had one. It's pop up right. This is exactly what happens. It was a very similar conversation about uh, that brought up mullets. Yeah, then, uh, history. Who knew? On that. The history of the mullet. Yeah. <laughs> then I think it was kind of a race to see which one of us could write that first. And then, all, <laughs> then all of a sudden, then mullets are showing up. Uh, you're seeing uh, it's there's so, a, right, there's people, a comeback on people it's, are growing um, mullets again. I'm uh, sure that's because of us. I'm not uh, yeah, so sure it, it, it's, it's probably the history guy was. We the have one we who, have sparked again the mullet. <laughs> I've I've been scanning a lot of family photos, and uh, yeah, there were a lot of mullets. Uh, they they were certainly oh you know there were, were a lot of mullets in your family too I don't know mine I mean I had hair longer in the back I'm not sure if it was quite a mullet because it wasn't short on the side but I mean there were some pretty darn mullet like pictures that are in there but yeah. uh, there are some uh, yeah I think that pretty much Todd was pretty much a mullet sometime your uncle oh, yeah. Todd was uh, yeah yeah my 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 uncle Pat had a had a something that was that was a mullet going on too that was very nice uh, these days you look back and i i'm sure everybody's embarrassed about most of their mullet pictures from the <laughs> the 1980s and 1990s but <laughs> well and i had a grand uh, well, except a, that mullets are coming back had a grand, uh, grand probably family. people that were just waiting for that they were like i've always wanted my mullet back now i can finally had a grandson that uh, just graduated or just, just graduated from high school and he was famous for his mullet and so uh, even that generation. Well, that's absolutely right. Yeah, he was. Uh, you know, things uh, things come around and they go around. I, I said, would you be embarrassed if we did a shout out to Wyatt? Shout no. out to my nephew Wyatt. Hey, yeah, Wyatt. Wyatt. Wyatt, rocked, Wyatt. Rocked, rocked a mullet until he graduated high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah he certainly did. <laughs> and everybody everybody gave him a bad time about it. It looked pretty good on him. So, yeah, yeah, I knew it looked good, yeah. <laughs> we love you, Wyatt. We do. <laughs> we do. <laughs> it's a... Uh, you know, it's it is amazing how these vending machines, when they figured them out, they proliferated quickly. And I mean, they were clearly more than just a novelty. I mean, these things were these things were making making bank. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think I've actually eaten in an automat. Uh, and I don't, are there oh, still really? any anywhere left? I think I have. Yeah, yeah. And it did work like you know, they said it there. You would go get a a hamburger or something, anything hot. You usually got at a counter. 
Uh, but there were it was like pies and fruit and salads and stuff that you could Chips. go get, and you go put put the you know put your quarter in and open the thing and it would come out. Yeah, yeah. We never quite uh, reached the of the, this imagination of uh, some of them were like, oh, these lazy workers. Well, we'll we'll replace them. We'll have a grocery store that's nothing but. Uh, yeah, nothing we never quite reached machine. that, did we? Yeah. And we've gotten. I mean, an Amazon warehouse probably looks reasonably yeah. close. Yeah. Well, to if that, you think but... about it, Amazon is almost like a big vending machine. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is almost. It's yeah. very automated in that same way. And of course, you have a lot of fast food now. You come in and you order off a screen. So I mean, that's yeah. getting that's getting closer and closer to turning you know all of retail and food into something kind of like a vending machine. Uh, I, I never thought about it that way, but you're mm-hmm. right. If you're ordering online, then it is kind of a mm-hmm. kind of like a vending it's machine. Kind of its own. Uh, yeah, and it's and I mean like that's it's a little more I guess conceptual than than a literal hard to pay with a slug, machine, but, but yeah. <laughs> but I mean conceptually, um, it's very much the same. Is that as you're you're, yeah. you're having an automatic vending of the product, so you don't have to have a salesperson there? Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, it reminded me a little bit. Um, we we did an episode. I I wrote an episode on uh, neon a ways back, and neon had an interesting history. But one of the things it talked about was how neon had been this this like symbol of the future mm-hmm. and how everyone was excited and it was what you had in your you know your like sci-fi movies and stuff and, then, and now it's I, retro yeah yeah and the, the vending machines have a little bit followed that too because uh, yeah. they were there was a time where the, the vending machine the concept of the vending machine was the idea of the future and uh, that's that's changed somewhat yeah now, in know, a way vending machines tend to retro i mean because we yeah. went through that era too we went through the red box era uh, so, yeah. uh, so that you had a, you know, you went from having uh, stores that you went into re- to rent mu- movies, to then you got that through a vending machine that was a very common vending yeah. machine, and now that era has passed, and everything's you know bought digitally, and you don't even see the yeah. red boxes anymore. So it's it is kind of funny how something's the future, and then how quickly it can be the past. Uh, and yeah. then, you know, maybe as we were talking about conceptually, whatever, uh, 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 the, you know, vending machines might again be more of the future. I don't but know. Just think about the technology and there. Uh, and we go right back to, to NASA and the invention of the of the chip and all those kind of things. Basically, yeah. that's another thing. Another thing that through the advancements that we made in technology there uh, took us all the way through, uh, uh, you know, all the way through this this technology, too. It's. Uh, and how fast it does go, at, and so much faster nowadays because of communications. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. You know, we had a we had a computer chip. You know, they NASA invented this stuff, and I mean, some of those same same inventions are literally in vending machines now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how that's how every day yeah. <laughs> uh, this technology becomes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, what was the highest technology that was getting us to the moon? And that's what that's what decides when the elevator door opens at the right time, and how they how the vending machine knows yeah. that it's that it's a quarter and not a slug. Mm-hmm. That's true. Well, you know, just I yesterday, I... Um, we might do parking meters is another one that we might do uh, yeah. the history on sometime. But yeah, yesterday we went to use the parking meter, and now uh, uh, it will take quarters, but you also can go in and pay, you know, online. Uh, huh. And it's it's uh, that we're just doing that crossover. So you know, the future becomes the past becomes the future. These are good examples of that. These are also good. Ex- both of these episodes are good examples of technology that kind of developed over time, but really came ripe at the point it became popular. Yeah. Uh, they both have their their mix of vintage and uh, you know and nostalgia as well as with the you know with the future. They both are are things that are going to be with us into the future, and the technology yeah. might change. So it's it's really fascinating. But if you think about because they came about, I mean, uh, the popularity of them really kind of came at about the same time. You're you're thinking yeah. about having vending machines being pretty common at the same time you're seeing elevators become very common and think about what a dynamic era that was and uh, i don't know we see so much technology change this day today do we realize it i mean or do we recognize it in the same way you did when when suddenly elevators were taking you up you know 60 70 story buildings and and uh, and you could buy your your gum from a machine so i mean they really do the two of them really kind of represent this kind of exciting age uh 
uh, where you had to feel yeah. like you were living in the space age uh, when when this stuff was happening, and, but it still might be part of the future. And, and, I mean, and they were a lot of fun. And now yeah. it's just uh, it just you, we take all of that. We, just, we we take them for granted, but we're so granted. awesome amazed when we have new new developments in them. That's true, and I think yeah. we, we all still use some form of vending machine. Still pretty commonly, I think it's it's mm-hmm. uh, more than you would realize. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.